The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Welcome to the True Tone Lounge. I'm Zach Childs, your host. Today, our guest is Andy Reese. Andy Reese was born in New York, raised in San Francisco. Oh, you've been checking up on me. <laughs> yes, a lot. Oh, you've been a naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> raised in, in San Francisco, moved to Nashville in 1981. He went to the uh, Pete Drake Finishing School, <laughs> where he learned how to do tap and jazz. Yes, yes. <laughs> And proper etiquette as Pro well. Proper etiquette. And he's played with, with so many great artists, especially everyone from Slim Pickens to Slim Whitman. All the Slims. All the Slims, <laughs> yes. And then Willie Nelson, Reba McIntyre, Amy Grant, Vince Gill, on and on. Uh, truly versatile guitarist, though he might be best known for his jazz playing kind of classic country and, and western swing playing. Yeah. He's been a member of the Time Jumpers for over 20 years. 20 years, yep. Yeah. And uh, you can catch them, you know, every almost every Monday night at 3rd and Lindsley and it's an amazing show. So, very grateful to have him on the show today, Andy Reese. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so Andy, tell tell me about growing up in San Francisco in the music scene. Were you able to be part of the whole, you know, I mean, cuz there was that whole Scene going on with Bloomfield and the Grateful Dead and yeah. the, the zeitgeist that was there was incredible. Um, I grew up in a house right pretty much in the middle of the city, about eight blocks from the corner of Hayton Ashbury, if you can imagine that. And uh, a block away from my house was an old church the Grateful Dead rehearsed in. Um, my dad had an apartment building, a couple of flats. And Marty Ballin was one of his tenants. Oh, wow. And I'd go in there to help him do plumbing or whatnot. And he had a red 335 on a stand in the living room. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was so good. Is that what, you know, kind of, you know, bit you as far as the guitar bug was? Well, it wasn't really. It, I had it before that because okay. um, a lot of my parents' friends and my friends' parents were kind of... Um, beatniks, you know, kind of kind of hipsters of the day, and they're into what is now referred to as the great folk music scare. Yes. So there are a lot of guys with guitars, and um, they were terrible. They could barely play, and, and I could tell that. Yeah. And I, I really liked the guitar, but I did not like the way they played. And so I thought, well, hell, I can do better than that. And my parents said, oh, really? And I said, yeah, and I've been taking piano lessons with this horrible old Russian woman. And um, so my folks made me save up my money and I saved up $12.95 and ordered a guitar from Sears. <laughs> and it took a month to, to get there and it was like just so exciting, you know. Yeah. And then we finally go in and picked it up. I was 10 years old and it was just the most exciting thing I could imagine. I, I haven't put it down since, pretty much. What color was that first Sears guitar? It was a sunburst. Um, yeah. It was a silver tone, but it was kind of like a 
a Stella equivalent. You know. Yeah. So a fl flat top. Yeah, round flat hole. top. Yeah. Yeah. Steel strings. So, what was your first, you know, professional gig in San Francisco? Um, well, my first recording session. Wow. Was um, doing a soundtrack for a porno movie in the basement <laughs> of a church. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you come by such work? <laughs> Working in the ad adult uh, entertainment industry. Actually, I knew the uh, the woman who was starring in the movie. Okay. So. And, and so you know you got a referral, and uh, she said you know you should you should play on this recording where she will be entertaining people and yes yeah one thing led to another one thing led to another yeah and then um, and I played you know the junior high school bands whatnot played the battle of the bands yeah and, and I learned a pretty important lesson pretty quick I, I had this band we played blues tunes and we came in second and then I joined. I quit them and joined the band that came in first, <laughs> which was um, featured a couple of guys who are actually very influential in my life: uh, keyboard player named Jeff Pitson, okay, and a bass player named Ratso Harris, and they're they're actually both working as jazz musicians in New York right now. So, how did they influence you? Well, they were the first guys I really played jazz with. They were really okay. into Herbie Hancock and all that kind of stuff, and. Um, it was really fun to play with them. They really opened my ears and my horizons. And there's, it seems like there's a, a big barrier when you when you kind of start with you know kind of blues or country you know or even you know rock styles, and when you start you know trying to you know kind of you know beat through that kind of hedge into jazz music. How you know what helped? I guess those other players kind of helped you. What? What kind of helped you, you know, kind of really get into it and start understanding jazz? Well, well, well there's two two factors to that. I believe okay. one is something I think is essential for for children is to listen to jazz. Yeah. And my parents were great lovers of music. They listened to classical music relentlessly, and um, a couple of jazz records. And one record they had was uh, Charles Mingus Mingus uh, Ohm, which is a pretty deep record, but I was started listening to that when I was six or seven through the years of a child, not analyzing at all, just listening and and loving it. I really liked the record. Right. And as a result of that, I honestly believe it didn't scare me. Mm-hmm. But then uh, I started playing venture stuff, you know, that was what was happening then. My brother brought home a B.B. King album called Blues is King. Mm-hmm. And there was an instrumental on there called Just Like a Woman that just tore the top of my head off. It was so great. So I became a blues nerd for a while, a couple of years, just listening to B.B. and Albert and Buddy Guy with Junior Wells. Yeah. And all that stuff was so great. But I started wanting to hear a little more. You know, I guess I had that jazz bug planted in me. And I started listening to... Kenny Burrell was probably the guy who really got me excited then. But I kept reading Guitar Player magazine and all these interviews with the old jazz guys, and every one of them said it all comes from Charlie Christian. Okay. Barney Kessel, Joe Pass, Herb Ellis, every one of these guys says the same thing. So I said, well, I better listen to Charlie Christian. And Columbia had just reissued a box set of the Benny Goodman sextet stuff with Charlie. And I got that, and it just really excited me. It was so great. 
And it was a good start because he was still very blues-based, but a little more harmonically advanced. It, it was a good place to step from blues into jazz. So I kind of followed the progression of electric jazz guitar. Charlie Christian and onward up to you know right. later guys like Kenny Burrell. Right. So, yeah. And so that's what kind of eased you into that one, having heard jazz, right? You know, as a as as a child. So and, it wasn't yeah in, intimidating to me. Yeah. To the extent that it probably would have been. Yeah. And then hearing Charlie Christian, who was still a sophisticated player, but yet he was more blues based, right. so it wasn't as foreign to you. Yeah. So did you uh, did you start playing with jazz? bands at this point, or were you just kind of experimenting with it also while you're playing in rock bands? I, I, I never really played in rock bands that much. Okay. I'm, I'm really not a rock-based player, because I went from the the jazz, I mean the blues through the jazz, yeah, and concurrently started listening to country music, which seems an odd combination, but there it is. Yeah. Um, so I was playing in blues bands, and then I started playing with, you know, people like Jeff and Ratza, who I mentioned earlier. And then I started playing with some other guys who were just uh, in kind of workshop home situations, which is something I've done all my life. Get together with guys and just play through tunes and yeah. try and work through them and have a, a zone where you're able to try things and fail and not be laughed at, you know? Yeah. Yeah, to sit in a, in a, you know, kind of a circle with other players and, uh, you know, kind of take turns, you know, soloing over changes and, and you, you know, it's not like you're in front of a big audience right. and you can, uh, you know, you can really take chances and, and, uh, and feel like, okay, that's the direction I want to go in or that's, that's not, that right. was, that's a dead end. <laughs> that didn't work at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just nice to have a safe zone, you know. Yeah. Because musicians can be pretty harsh, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. So how did the how did the country thing come about? Well, my parents were European descent. I'm in San Francisco, listening to classical and jazz. So country music really had almost no bearing on my life. Exactly. But my brother and I listened to the radio all the time because we didn't have a TV set as kids. And we listened to just all kinds of crazy stuff. And we found these country stations. Mm -hmm. And at first we're like, this is the most ridiculous stuff we've ever heard. And then after a while, we're like, this is ridiculous, but what's that sound? I really like that. And, and pretty soon we were big fans, you yeah. know. And so what were the things that were catching your ear? Well, it was California, so we're hearing, yeah. you know, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens okay. mostly. And Don Rich and James Burton. And, right. Yeah. You know, later Roy Nichols. And, right. Yeah. And then um, a friend of mine said, do you like that? Listen to this and got me a uh, Texas Troubadour album and I heard Leon Rhodes play. Oh, wow. And that's when I was like, there it is, that's everything I like. Yeah, because Stuck together in yes, one. Because it was that, it was that am amalgam of, of jazz and, and, right. and country, yeah, yeah. So, so that just totally resonated with me and yeah. somehow or another ended up being a career. Yeah. And so from there, did you go back and start hearing things like uh, like Bob Wills and things yes. like that? So I guess your introduction to Western, kind of Western swing was, was the, the Troubadours? And it was, but then I got the uh, the Merle Haggard tribute to Bob Wills album, right. the best damn fiddle player, right. which is a really wonderful album. It is. And it had Eldon Shamblin and Tiny Moore yeah. and Joe Hawley and um, all those amazing players. Yeah. And it really 
it really resonated with me. And then when I was 15, my brother and I took a Greyhound bus from San Francisco to Sacramento, which about an hour and a half, but on a Greyhound bus, that's about three days, of course. And we went to the state fair because Buck and the Buckaroos were playing. Wow. And they were phenomenal. But the really cool thing was in a small booth by himself was Tiny Moore. So he was playing along with tracks, I think. And um, we, we talked to him. We, after he was done performing, my brother and I talked to him, and he was just amazed to see these young hippie kids from San Francisco mm -hmm. were really into what he was doing, and I, and I knew about him at that point from, yeah. from the Haggard album. So that was that was really a, an important moment for me. Yeah. And just to kind of, for those that might not be aware, Tiny Moore is a, a five-string electric mandolin player that Correct. played with Bob Wills and played with some other Western swing acts, and then you know, probably later in his career played with with Merle Haggard in you know on this Bob Wills. You know, tribute record, and then he played some with him on, on some, some later albums also. And, and played on the road with him yeah. some, too. Yeah. And he would do concerts on yeah. his own in the Bay Area, so. Because yeah. actually the Bay Area was, at one point, before I was aware of it, but it was a big Western swing scene. Right. And uh, I know Tiny played with Billy Jack Wales up in Sacramento, where mm -hmm. we saw him. And Sears Point was a, a raceway in San Francisco, and they had uh, Western Swing dances there all the time. Yeah. And another interesting thing about Tiny, most people when they hear Tiny, they think it's a guitar player. Yeah, he sounds yeah. like a guitar he, player because yeah. it's not double chorus. Right. It's electrified because he played a Bigsby, which yeah. sounded incredible. Yeah. It was just like a high-pitched guitar, like somebody playing on the up top end of the neck. And he was swung like crazy and was always inventive and he didn't repeat himself and he was the guy who apparently created most of the harmony lines most of the twin guitar lines wow so he was kind of arranging yes that for bob there's a series of albums of billy jackwells with him and the steel guitar player vance terry yes and the lines they play together are just just wonderful it's a great record i've heard some of those yeah what inspired you to want to move to nashville well after I graduated from high school, I started playing country gigs in the Bay Area, and there was a huge scene there then, mostly in the South Bay, San Jose, Richmond, um, all the way up to Vallejo, really, Fremont. And they, they were like probably 10 or 12 different clubs that had live music five or six nights a week, seven nights a week sometimes. And you can make a pretty good living playing six nights a week, playing country music down there. And it was, it was a real scene. There were some phenomenal players there. Larry and Bobby Black, who became mentors of mine. It, it was a great scene. So I, I started working my way into that, and I got where I was making a good living playing out there. But I just got frustrated with it. Where was it going, you know? And the professional music scene in San Francisco really was rock and roll. And I, I flirted with that, played in some rock bands, but it just wasn't me. Mm -hmm. So I married a Southern girl, and pretty soon the talk, she wanted to be back in the South again. So at some point, you have to decide New York, LA, or Nashville if you want to be serious about a musical career. Yeah. And Nashville just seemed to be 
I was playing country music. Some people I knew had contacts here. Okay. And Southern girl, so. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Did you have any? Did you have any contacts? Did you just arrive here without, you know, without a prayer? Or did you have some? Pretty much cold. Yeah. I had one guy who knew Charlie McCoy. Okay. And one guy who knew, who was friends with a guy named Hoyt Henry. Okay. And uh, he also knew Pete Drake. So I called him Charlie McCoy, and he was very nice, but not specifically helpful. He was like, uh, well, if I hear any road gigs, I'll let you know you're not getting into the studios right away. Right. Which was only factual. Um, I called up Hoyt when I first got to town. His son is Don Henry, the, the great songwriter here in town. Mm -hmm. And Hoyt said, oh yeah, come on over, stay with us. He was just the sweetest, most loving guy in the world. So we stayed in his place for a couple of days till we found a house. Um, he introduced me to all kinds of people. He introduced me to one famous session player. This is one of my favorite stories. It said, um, I'm not going to mention the guy's name. He said, uh, so-and-so, this is Andy. He's just moved into town. He's a really good guitar player. Um, he wants to get into sessions. And the guy looked at me and said, it's good to meet you. I'll tell you how it is. You're my competition. Why should I help you? <laughs> it was a scary moment. Yeah. And, it, I, and he was playing on a lot of records, so I'm thinking, yeah. I'm not his competition. Yeah. But pretty soon we actually were competing for yeah. $25 song sessions, you know. Yeah. It's kind of a, a, a blunt uh, a blunt but honest response, yeah. but yeah. you'd hope that there would be a little more of a, a velvet hammer. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, I, I called up Pete Drake, and he said, come on down to the studio. He had a studio on 18th Avenue, and he stayed there all night, sometimes till five or six in the morning. And he'd hang out, work on tapes, just gab with people. It was just one of those Nashville hangs, you know? Yeah. So he'd invite me to come down and hang. And it felt good, it was comfortable. He was really nice. I was totally intimidated by him, of course. Then if he had a session coming in, he was producing a session, he'd invite me to come and watch the session and just be a fly on the wall. Yeah, and that was amazing because I came to town from California real cocky, you know, thinking rhythm guitar. Come on now, he's strumming a G chord. Who the hell can't do that, you know? And then I went to a session. There's Ray Edenton and Jimmy Capps playing. Both of them playing rhythm guitar, and I'm watching them play, and I'm thinking, oh, I'll tell you who can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Me! Because well, it's, it's not just what they're playing, but the feel and, and yeah. everything that they're, you know, the, they're putting on an album. Yeah, rhythm guitar is one of the underrated art forms, in my opinion. Yeah. So it was a real education getting to watch. We had Grady, he had Pete Wade, he had those guys, he had Dale Sellers, um, just all these great players came in. It was it was the A team all the time. Yeah. Harold Bradley, and eventually they got used to seeing me, and I talked to them. And I, Harold Bradley was one. I'd, I'd help him out to his car, and he had a big Oldsmobile with a trunk full of guitars, and he'd bring like 
eight, ten guitars into a session, and I thought that was so cool, and I'd help him carry them out. And he was really kind to me. And so I got up my nerve and said, um, I'm going to take him to lunch. We're going to talk about, you know, and maybe try and get a little leg up on my career. So I called him up, and he'd give me his number, and he said, um, yeah, Let's go to lunch. I've got a 10 o'clock over at RCA. Come pick me up after that. We'll go to lunch. And I had no money at that point. No money. So I'm dragging together all my nickels and pennies. I get like 10 bucks up. I think, where do I take him to lunch? I thought, uh, I'm just talking about Red Lobster. That's a fancy place. I'll take him to Red Lobster. I'm all nervous about this. I go to the studio. He's packing up a help and carry his guitars out as usual. He says, okay, get in the car. We're going to Arby's. I'm paying. <laughs> <laughs> and he became uh, a real mentor and friend to me. So I got the gig with Slim, and basically what it amounted to was we would tour England one year and tour Australia the next year. And we'd be gone for basically a month at a time. So it was nice. It, it paid good at the time. Yeah. Um, he was actually an amazing singer, an amazing performer, which I hadn't realized when I was laughing at the commercials. But we would play in these small theaters in England like 2,000 people, maybe. And you could hear a pin drop in the place. He was one of those people, he'd walk on the stage and every head goes like that because he just had it, the mysterious yeah. thing. And he was a very laid-back performer, but he just would have people in the palm of his hand. And uh, I didn't really see that again in, in my career. And I've, I've come back to those days so thinking that was the stuff right there. Yeah, it's funny thinking about Slim. It's hard not to think about Mars Attacks and oh, yeah. and, and the Slim Whitman uh, yodeling that that kills the aliens. Explodes the aliens' heads. Yeah, but <laughs> you actually spent spent time with them. Was uh, was Harold part of that also? Yeah, Harold Harold was doing the tours as well. Okay, so he would do stuff like um, if I'm playing something like that. He's, we'd play it in unison. So he's just beating me up, you know. Don't alternate, pick that. So I'll be downstrokes. <laughs> he was a firm believer in downstrokes. Yeah. And he was right. For certain passages, when you really want to give them emphasis, downstrokes works a hundred times better. 
Yeah. And just little things like that. Don't don't put that in a vibrato on weight. Okay, now, just a little bit. That's too much. <laughs> so he, he'd really nitpick me and beat me up, and, and it was great. It was really yeah. the best guitar lessons you could get. Wow. So you're you're getting to you know tour with one one of your heroes and he's he's giving you feedback you know because yeah. he's playing with you right what an what an amazing gift yeah, yeah. it was yeah. so what what happened next I was, I was doing starting to get some sessions in between all that and playing on records and demos and jingles and yeah. a little bit of everything mm. and then. Um, Came the the Reba McIntyre plane crash. Right, where the band the band was was killed, and they had to put a band another band together. Right, and the, there were two guys who were in the plane that didn't didn't die, didn't crash, and oh, what a horrible experience. Yeah, and one of the guys was my good friend Pete Finney. Yeah, steel player. Yep, and uh, I heard about the crash and called Pete just to make sure he was okay, and he was, yeah, I'm fine. And then it wasn't long after that, maybe a week after that, he said, well, we're trying to put together the band and I put your name in. He says, nobody knows you, so you're on the, on the B list. Okay. And they auditioned an A-list band and hired everybody except the guitar player. And I was in the B band and I was the one guy who got hired out of the B band. What, what did you think that pushed you over the edge versus the other, other guitar players? I kind of knew I had it when uh, she did the song Sunday Kind of Love. Yeah. And the, they they could hear that I was bluesy, jazzy, you know. So when um, they did Sunday Kind of Love and they said, you don't have to do this, I just want to throw this at you, but uh, you want to take, I want to hear you do a couple more solos on this tune. And of course I had that shit, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I played it. And that was it. Yeah. So you you toured with Slim, and then now you're you're touring with Rebo, which Rebo was kind of not quite at the zenith, but she was at a pretty high point in her career. She was at a really high point. It was a yeah. big deal. We were playing. I mean, I went from playing twenty five hundred people to playing twenty five thousand people. Yeah. And, I get, and you were probably also doing a fair amount of TV, also. Fair amount of TV. It was yeah. a real change. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it was a really difficult time for everyone in that organization. Because of what had happened. Yeah. yeah, and they put the band together so fast, and it was amazingly difficult for everyone, and for us as the new guys, but really hard for, for Reba, certainly. Yeah. And for the crew, you know, because like our guitar tech was really close to the guitar player, and he had a certain amount of resentment for me, and he was very professional and didn't didn't show that, but it was a, it was a really hard time. Now, with her material, again, you're having to cover you know a, a lot of different sounds, a lot of styles. You know, because you know you have her records from the '70s and the early '80s, and then you have you know the kind of the Jimmy Bowen, you know, right. stuff, and then you get the Tony Brown stuff that is a lot slicker. Yeah. And uh, so, what what gear were you you know were were you kind of revising some of the arrangements? You know, were you? Covering, I, I, I you know, didn't too much. Um, yeah. Their policy was, if, if there's a solo, I could play whatever I wanted to. Wow. But they wanted me to play the same thing over and over again. The, okay. the band was rehearsed to the point where they wanted us to be on autopilot. Okay. 
So gear-wise, I was using, though um, those were the dreaded days of the Strat and the stereo chorus. Yeah. And they wanted us to go direct in in-ears. So I had no idea what anything really sounded like, which was really bad. But I played, uh, I have a, a lovely 59 Strat that I played, and then the custom shop made me a, another one that was supposedly just like it. It wasn't, but it was still a great guitar. And I used a, a Korg A3 for most of that, yes. multi-effects. Yeah, rack unit. Yeah. And so you just plugged into the A3 and you had a lot of foot controller and, and yep. you went direct. And those were early days for in-ear monitors too. They, they were, and the in-ear monitors sounded god-awful. <laughs> and going direct with a rack unit, that's pretty awful too, you know. Yeah. Pretty, it's pretty harsh. It's it's yeah. pretty transient. Sounding. It is. Yeah. So so I I worked really hard on trying to get that thing to sound good, and but I still couldn't really tell. And ultimately, um, I don't think I helped myself with that. <laughs> what were some of the things you learned? You know, working working with Reba and playing those size rooms and things like that. It wasn't fun like I thought it would be. Okay. Why wasn't it? Well, partly because you're so isolated with the in-ear monitors, it's not really like playing music. Yeah. And the band was always great, but it was so formatted and so corporate country. Right. And I'm playing all that. I mean, not, nothing against Reba, but the, the parts of the music were really commercial at that point in time. It, right. it was not creative in any way for me. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, touring with a, with a major act can be kind of like Groundhog Day. Oh, every, very much so. Yeah, where every day is the same day over and over again, where there's no change in the arrangement, there's no change in the set order. It's, you know, they're because of their lights and video and right. things like that, that it's, 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 it's getting the performance right. It's not, you know, you, you don't have the, the opportunity to really be artistic or, Im, or improvise much. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. And, and, and it makes sense for, for, for what yeah. they're doing, certainly. But... At, at a certain point, you realize you're just a cog and almost anybody in town could do what you're doing with a, a week of work, you know? Yeah. So more and more you started, you know, pushing, you know, playing more jazz-oriented gigs. And so how did the Time Jumpers come about? My interest in the Time Jumpers was I was playing with a, a wonderful singer named Mandy Barnett, who I still play with. Yes. And... Uh, my friend Harold Bradley hooked me up with her, as a matter of fact, because he was producing her. And we went up to New York and played this amazing gig at Madison Square Garden with uh, Paula Cole and Helen Reddy and Odetta and all these all these amazing women. And on the way back, Hoot Hester and Johnny Cox were in the band. And Hoot and Johnny started talking about this band they put together. And they had just gotten together and played in... I think Hoot's Basement once, maybe. And they were playing Western Swing. And I thought, now why would you have a Western Swing band and not have me in it? <laughs> so I said, you know, boy, I'd love to I'd love to do this. I said, well, we've got a gig coming up next week. Why don't you come out and play with us? So I went out and played with them. And the band then was Robert Bolin, Hoot, Dennis Crouch, Kenny Malone, Johnny Cox, I think, just the fine with him. So I sat in, and it felt great. Yeah, it was just a natural thing for me. So I was in the band at that point, 
And not long after that, maybe a month after that, we started our Monday night residency at the station and who was friends with J.T. Gray and said, Monday night's dark, why don't we just try it? We'll just go have fun. And for a long time, the band outnumbered the audience. Yeah. We'd make 20 bucks a night. But then you slowly built up a following. We did build it up. Yeah. And, and we didn't do it for money. Yeah. Or, or for, or even for the crowd, really. We did it for us to have fun and play music we loved. You know, the band has has been through you know changes as you know, some some have you know gone on to other things, some have passed away. Yeah, you know? and, uh, and you kind of have your 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 current lineup, which you know in, includes you know, of course yourself, and you have you know Vince Gill and Paul Franklin, and uh, you know it's it's an amazing you know band that it's uh, a country western orchestra. Yeah. And it's always, when anyone says, you know, what should I go and do when I come to Nashville? I said, well, if you're going to be here on a Monday night, you need to see the Time Jumpers. It is an amazing show. I don't care what type of music you like, you will be entertained by these guys. Yeah, people <laughs> always is, seem to enjoy it, even yeah. when they come from totally different worlds. Yeah. I had one friend who came down and said he had absolutely no context for what we're doing. And didn't even like this kind of music. He said, "I had a great time. I loved it." Yeah, yeah, because it's 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 musical and entertaining without you know. And y'all don't like jump around on stage <laughs> by no. any means at all. We all sit down. <laughs> Everyone's sitting down. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes people don't wear shoes even. Yeah. Yeah, one of our members. Uh, yes, he's notorious. Is to wear shorts and flip flops all the time. Yes. So you also uh, have some side bands that you have where you're, you know, playing, you know, more hardcore jazz. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I play in a group called the Lori Meacham Quartet. Right. Which is uh, Lori and her husband Roger run the Nashville Jazz Workshop here in town, which has been a wonderful performance space and educational facility, and they're really great musicians. And I love playing with them. Chris Brown plays drums. Uh, I play in a group called Big Bad Rhythm, mm -hmm. and it's little brother Bad Rhythm, which is uh, my good friend Danny Coots on drums. An amazing piano player just moved here from Texas, named Brian Holland. Uh, the great Pat Bergeson on oh, guitar yes. and harmonica. He's, he's been on the show before. Yeah. yeah, and a bass player from California named Sam Roca. And it's uh, a really eclectic group. And so what type of jazz do you tend to play? Well, Brian and Danny come from a really traditional world. Brian's thing is uh, he's the best stride piano player I've ever heard. and plays wow. great boogies and all, all that kind of stuff. And I'm approaching it more from a bebop and soul jazz perspective. Okay. And Pat's from a little more modern space than, mm -hmm. than I'm coming from. So everybody has a different thing that they bring to it and it's really cool we go to each other's worlds and create our own worlds and it's really a fun band we have an album coming out uh, wonderful any day now I think
One of the things I really wanted to cover with you, Andy, is some of the older styles of, of Nashville guitar that have kind of been forgotten to a degree, but are really important. And you hear on so many, you know, classic records. So, and, and a lot of these were kind of created by Harold Bradley and, and Grady Martin and, uh, and, and Hank Garland and on and on. If you could tell us a bit about that and kind of show us some of those styles. The older Nashville styles were largely played on Gibson guitars instead of Telecasters. Right. Telecasters was the California sound. Mm -hmm. And I mean, certainly guys were playing them here and you did hear guys do chicken picking and stuff, but really that style was originated by James Burden and Don Rich out in California. So I was pretty conversant with that, but but I always really liked that big fat Gibson sound. And I remember hearing, I knew that all these guys played on the record, but I didn't know who played what, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'd hear like a Conway Twitty record and I heard that really sexy Echoplex guitar fills. I was like, I don't know what that is. And then I'd, I'd see ads and guitar player, whatever. That's when micro frets guitars are out. And somehow or another I got it in my head that a micro frets was that sound. Hmm. A micro frets was this bizarre brand yes. in Maryland with a tunable nut and a bridge, a vibrato bridge that you could actually uh, set to tune like a, a, a string pull device so you could fix your intervals. It's an interesting guitar, but it was a terrible guitar. Yeah, and then kind of a, a Gumby appearance. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. They they were made of two different plates that literally had little clips inside that are clipped together. Mm. Really bizarre guitars, and they were all yeah. twenty-four inch scale, so they just went plink, plink, plink. Yeah. But somewhere or another, I got it in my head that that was the sound I was hearing, so I got a micro fret. I thought it was great, but it wasn't. And I found out when I moved here that what I was hearing was a an ES-355, an Echoplex, and a Deluxe Reverb. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't really have that set up now, but it was kind of these uh, just really melodic fills. The really nice, smooth, elegant touch. And that, that really talked to me. So that was one thing that was going on in traditional country records back yeah. then. Another would be what they call Columbia guitar. Just the knob here, which basically is um, tremolo pads. Mm -hmm. You'd hear that in all those records. Yeah. And it's hard to go wrong with you know diamonds, you know, it is. On, with a, a nice guitar and some tremolo on it. And then of course there'd be the chinks on the afterbeats. Yeah. We've all heard that. Yeah. So the great thing about that is there's three guitar players right there. Then you have a guy playing the tic-tac bass, and two, sometimes three acoustic players. So you're creating employment for all these guitar players. Of course, now we all overdub them. Yeah. All this kind of stuff. And the tic-tac bass was a style that uh, Mr. Bradley really uh, pioneered. And if you give me a second here, I'll... Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll keep rolling and... Uh...
Then there's the Tic Tac bass, which Harold Bradley pioneered. And it was always a Dan Electra six-string bass. And this is the real deal. This is the real deal, 1958. And people talk about um, baritone guitars, which have come out recently, and you've got the Fender Bass 6 there. Yeah. Which Harold, uh, or Harold, Leo Fender called a baritone guitar, but it was a six-string bass. Yeah. And people didn't use, quote-unquote, baritone guitars there. There was no A to A or B to B. Mm -hmm. It was strictly six-string bass. The function of this was to double an acoustic bass part. Right. It's because the bass didn't always transfer well on the radio or on a jukebox, so they wanted something to really define it, because bass, of course, will define the harmony on an arrangement. So Harold came up with this really goofy technique of taking the six-string bass and doubling the bass line using a pick, uh, treble all the way up, bass all the way down, round wound strings, never flat wounds, and muting it and playing like this. Tons of that on the Patsy Cline, yeah. you know, records. You've heard you of really so hear those them. classic yeah. records. Yeah. And uh, it became a big part of the German band leader, Bert Kamfert's sound. And okay. his guy stole stole the whole thing from Harold, apparently. But uh, I got to play that with Harold many times. And once again, he'd beat me up and tell me how to play it. <laughs> and, and we were playing with a somewhat erratic bass player at one point, And I'm trying to match the bass exactly, you know. Yeah. And Harold said, don't worry about it. You don't have to match them exactly. Yeah. You know, I've talked to Bob, Bob Moore, who was the bass player in the A-Team back then, and Harold would work out these really intricate bass parts with him and Peg Robbins on the piano. Mm -hmm. So all three of them were playing the same thing. Wow. Which creates this amazing epic sound. Yeah. But Bob hated it. So Bob said he would wait. He'd patiently work out the whole part with Harold, and when the red light come on, he'd change. And he'd do whatever he wanted to. <laughs> and you can really hear that, but it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, having it be different is is fine. Yeah. Then, and of course, this instrument was also being used in California. It was. Yeah, and you know, of course, you had some basics, but you still had yeah. a, a lot of of Dan Electro being used in, in with the Wrecking Crew. Well, Harold told me that he sent a Dan Electro to California to to Leo because he was friends with Leo to to make one. Okay. And Leo sent him the Dan Electro back and sent him a, a bass six with flat wound strings on it. And Harold said he he's all proud of his new guitar. He brings it to a session. Uh, they do the first take and Owen gets on the talk back and says, Harold, something's wrong with your sound. That sounds terrible. What are you doing? And Harold's like, I got this new guitar. Owen said, pull out the old one. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. He never used the other one again. Yeah, but it's interesting, you know, of course in the Wrecking Crew you had more of it being used as a, a bit of a melodic instrument, you know, of yes. course, obviously by Glenn Campbell right. and, and such, but it's it's such a uh, it's such a neat sound. It's a beautiful sound, and yeah. also Dwayne Eddy was a big, right. had a big role in that, Yeah, because he would use it as a melodic instrument to, yeah. to great effect. Yeah, very cool. Tic-tac bass. Tic-tac. You were going to show us some, you know, kind of traditional flat top playing styles in uh, Ray Indenton and 
Jimmy Capps. And Jimmy Capps style. Well, a lot of times when people play acoustic guitar, they're playing it as a solo instrument and playing the bass parts. <laughs> doesn't always work on records because you have that carefully worked out bass part that Harold mm -hmm. and Bob and Pig did. Right. And you don't want to be playing another bass part on top of that that isn't with it. And also, the acoustic guitar almost takes the place of a hi-hat on a traditional country record. So if you don't have it constant, it it loses effect and loses the, the pocket or the, the groove of the song. So that same kind of progression I play, they probably play more like. Which by itself isn't as pleasing, but in, a, in the context of the record, it works a lot better. Yeah. And then they do a very similar style for a straight H thing, and this always gets called paintbrush guitar. Basically, the, the, the same technique. Yeah. And also, I should talk about um, high strung and Nashville tuned guitar. Yeah, because they're different. We don't have yeah. examples here, but yeah. uh, a high third or high involves replacing the G string with a much thinner string and tuning it up an octave. Right. So it's kind of like a ukulele almost. So instead of playing that, it would come out something like that. Yeah. And it just creates a different sound. It's nice if you're doubling a part in the same register to have that. And then a high-strung guitar is basically like the high strings of a 12-string. So that string, those four strings would be up an octave, so your right. open strings would sound like. And once again, it creates depths and texture yeah. you're doubling the part. We also talked about tuning. Tell us about tuning an acoustic. Tuning an acoustic guitar is, is a bear. You can tune with a tuner and only be vaguely right. When I'm in the studio, what I will generally do is tune to, to the one chord of the progression. So if it's a D, I'll use my tuner and get that as in tune as I possibly can. That chord, you'll tune to right. the chord. Yeah. And then I'll tune the other chords yeah. in it so I have an acceptable compromise. But when I'm on the one, I am in tune. The yeah. thirds, of course, are your real enemy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times it's wise to avoid thirds as much as possible. Just play roots and fifths, sevenths. Thirds where you get into trouble. Thirds will get you in all kinds of trouble. Well, because the, the tuning, it, it ends up, it, it will bead really badly. Right. And yeah. people hear thirds differently. Some people hear them sharper. I hear them sharper than most people do. Some people hear them flatter. And particularly if you're playing with a fiddle or a steel guitar, it's really hard for them because they, they keep adjusting as they go with the bar, with their hand. And they don't really want to hear a lot of other stuff competing with them. Uh, and another thing, of course, is your low E string. Just the dynamic of it, I almost always tune to a a G note rather than an open note, because the open note, your G will always be sharp and sound horrible. So you, if you tune to, to fretted notes, you kind of temper the tuning a little bit to make it sound 
you know, everything's kind of slightly out, but it's it's, right. it's enough so that it's more pleasing to the ear. But because a guitar can never be perfectly in tune. Right. Just impossible. And of course, you can get guitars set up, better nuts, better saddles, better frets, and control the pressure of your hands, too. It makes a huge difference. Years ago, I, I played in a band with a woman, a woman guitar player, and she played really hard. She was really nervous. And when I tuned the guitar, it wouldn't work for her because I, my touch is fairly light. So that's a big factor in intonation. Yeah, you can tune up a guitar and you can hand it to someone and they can play it out of tune. Right. And then you can hand it back to the other person and it plays in tune. Yep. What happened? And, and you'll see that in jam sessions all the time. Yeah. Somebody will hand you a guitar and it'll be out. But it sounded great when they played it. Right. They're used to it. They're used to it. And everybody has their own temperament according to their touch. So now let's cover some arch top. So here we have the acoustic arch top, which is truly a dying art. Um, th this style of guitar playing started in the 20s with Eddie Lang, who played with Joe Venuti, uh, Snoozer Quinn, a couple of other guys way back then. But acoustic rhythm guitar really came into its own. Um, in the 30s, and is he's not the originator, but the guy who really made it all come together was uh, a man named Freddie Green, who played mm -hmm. with the Count Basie Orchestra. And he was a, a truly incredible rhythm guitar player. And he found a system of playing that was typically three notes, and the emphasis on the top two. But these notes were very low in register, so he would use the G string, the D string, and the low E string. So for example, here's a second version of E voicing. It's not playing the A string, only those three. And the reason for that is he was right above the bass in range, right below the piano, because basically had a very controlled piano style, and below all the horns. So he had this one little area of sound where he was uniquely there. And that's how he could play an acoustic arch stop in an 18-piece horn band. Right. Because he had his own uh, frequency he, he space. He had his little frequency spot, which is a great lesson for guitar players always. Yeah. Make friends with mid-range. Mid-range is your friend. The construction of our stops guitars started in the 20s. Well, actually, late 18, the late, um, the, the turn of the last century. Orville Gibson was making arch stop guitars, but they really came together when Lloyd Lord came to Gibson mm -hmm. and created the L5, which was in the, uh, the mid-twenties. And those were spectacular guitars. In about 1935, Gibson changed to make them larger, what they call the advanced models, and they did lose some of the magic, but there are still some really great ones post-35. There were also two individual hand-makers who were really influential. One was John D'Angelico, who made uh, just the best guitars, and the other was Elmer Stromberg and his father Charles. And this is one of their guitars. Yeah. What year is this Stromberg? About 1941. Yeah. When the father made the guitars, they weren't that great, but when the son started taking over, he really studied how to carve a top and had a unique system of bracing. Typically, 
Gibsons would use either a parallel bracing, two braces here, or an X bracing pattern. What Stromberg did was he did half of the X brace. So there's one brace going across here. Okay. And this seems to allow the top to really move more. These guitars are louder and have a unique tone. Also, it's huge. It's 19 inches wide. Yeah. Bigger than a Gibson Super 400. That's a man's guitar. It's a man's guitar. I've seen them over play them. Yeah. play them great. But, um, and there are very specific techniques to do it. You don't, you don't really, I mean, you can do that. Mother Mabel did it to great effect. Yeah. But the, the, the Freddie Green style of playing is, um, once again, those chords, really high action, really heavy strings to really make the top project. Lay it on us. And a very specific way of picking as well, so. So it's a big, fat, robust sound. And to get a really nice, fat-sounding art style, you have to spend a lot of money, unfortunately. Uh, there's a lot of modern art shop guitar makers, and they're going for a different sound, a different aesthetic. So to really get this big, fat, Stromberg rhythm guitar sound, unfortunately, you're going to be spending some money getting a really great guitar. S some Gibsons can really pull it <coughs> off, but... Not all of them by any means. So were the Nashville players doing the, the Freddie Green type playing? on? So how was an arch top being used in well, Nashville? I learned this style from, from both Harold and Ray. They, okay. they, they both were kind enough to teach me. Uh, Ray in particular was very particular about that picking technique, and, and as was Harold, which is not something that would occur to you on a natural level. They were cutting a lot of pop records in Nashville. Harold played rhythm guitar on uh, Ray Anthony, the Bunny Hop, and the Hokey Pokey. Yeah. But you put your left foot in, you put your left foot out, you know. Someone played guitar on that, it was Harold. So they were doing a lot of pop records then. But there was also a country style they called sock rhythm. Okay. Where they would use arch tops, typically not a big throaty guy like this and it was a much more percussive style okay so it'd be more like and you, you hear that in a lot of the old country records and sometimes with a flat top playing along with it yeah it's almost like a mandolin chop almost kind very of thing. much so very yeah. much so yeah very cool and that's a just a beautiful guitar yeah i really lucked into this one mm. It's kind of a funny story. I, I was doing a tour with Slim in Canada, and there was this old guy who was also playing on the tour, and he was playing some kind of really cruddy Strat copy. And he said, I've got these two guitars I want to sell. And he gave me some Polaroids of this and a 41 Super 400 blonde non-cutaway. He said, I want 5000 for the pair. And at that time, I was like, non-cutaway? Acoustic art stuff. What am I going to do with those? Yeah, and five thousand was a lot of money back then. So a couple of years went by, and I was like, I need to buy those guitars. So I did all this research. Finally, find the guy pre-internet. You know, so I sold those to this collector in BC. He never sells. He only buys. 
that a few years later I got a I got a list. We had email then. I got a list of guitars for sale. There was like fifty great art stops. It turned out to be that collector. Mm -hmm. Seventy-eight years old, getting divorced, had to sell the guitars. So I get hold of him. I didn't realize it was him, but he had a Stromberg listed. I said, I'm interested in that Stromberg Master 300. And he said, um, yeah, it's $12,000. That was Jack Jensen's guitar. And I said, you're kidding me. I've got a photograph of that guitar. He said, yeah, and that's Canadian dollars. I'll take 8000 American. And I said, uh, sold. Unfortunately, I didn't buy it for 2500 but that was still a good price then. Yeah. They've gone down in value considerably. At that point in time, it was worth 35000 but uh, still worth a lot more than eight. Yeah. It makes me money. I love playing it. It's a great sounding instrument. It really is. Andy, let's talk about this beautiful 335 you have. Well, I, I'm a great lover of vintage guitars. Yes. And maybe because I'm a vintage person. But I, and not to say that there aren't really good new guitars being made. I, I have new guitars by uh, people like um, Charles Whitfield, yeah. who makes wonderful guitars up in Kentucky. I have a couple of his. Uh, Dr. Mojo here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. I have one of his. That's a lovely guitar. Yeah. Um, Magneto Guitars is a Japanese manufacturer that's really great. Yeah. I have a Les Paul style of theirs that I really love, played a lot. But my heart's really in the vintage stuff. This guitar is a uh, 1959 ES335 that I got from my good friend Nick Schilling up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, lifelong friend. And uh, he just sent me an email with some pictures and said, it's trading time, what you got? And I ended up with this wonderful beast. Yeah. It does that thing. Many times I'll go in a guitar store and I'll do what I call the one note test. Yes. If I play a guitar and it does this. I don't have a good guitar. Yeah, it doesn't go plink, plink. Right, exactly. Yes. And a lot of guitars you do that, it goes, yeah. <laughs> so. You know, I've had so many guitars over the years. I actually put together a list and I've had like 49 Gibsons, 43 Fenders. Wow. And uh, some good ones got away, but the ones I have now are, are all really great. Yeah. This is a, it's a very clean instrument. I mean, you showed me that it's, it's had a repair on it, but it's... Uh, yeah, mo most of my guitars are, are players' guitars that have had... Yeah. Something happened to them. Make more. And that's how I can afford them. You know, yeah, cause because otherwise they're ridiculous. This guitar is worth a fortune. Yeah. Even even damaged is still worth a fortune, but yeah. I couldn't afford it at full value for sure. Wow, it's a beautiful instrument and beautiful sounding instrument. I also brought my 1966. Gibson Barney Kessel Custom. Yeah, I've never seen a blonde one before. I think this is the only custom. I saw in an old English horror movie, uh, there was a band in London, and the guy was playing a blonde Barney Kessel standard, okay. which freaked me out. But as far as I know, this is the only custom, and it's quite a magnificent beast. That's, um, maple on it is gorgeous. And uh, a lot of people laugh at this model because they think it's really ugly. I think it's beautiful, personally. 
it's as ergonomic as a 335, really. You have such great access, and the feel of it is really great. It's a lot more ergonomic. I have an L5, and this is a lot easier to play and more fun to play than that is. Yeah. And, of course, you set them up differently. I've got a set of Labella flats on here because Labella makes the best flat wound strings. Yes, they do. Plinky, but for a jazz guitar, that's all right. Yeah, and and this is what you would use for more of a straight-ahead jazz. Yes. Gig. Yeah, as opposed to the 335, which is going to have which had round-wound strings. Right. On it in because gauge. it's a very different. It's about the sound, but it's also about the feel. Yeah. Because having a heavier gauge set, you can actually play faster because the strings don't move around as much. Right. So if I'm playing an intricate bebop line. It's a lot easier on this guitar than it is on the 335. Because the pick kind of bounces off the strings. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Heavy, heavy strings have, have advantages, too. And you yeah. can set the action real low with heavy strings. It's not good for bending, but if you're playing yeah. straight ahead jazz, you're not bending. So right. It's just not an issue. Yeah. Right. What a, and, and where did you find this guy? This was at uh, Lark Street Guitars. Oh, yeah. He thought it might have been refinished. I didn't think so, and I've taken it to some of the experts here in town, Walter Carter, George Groon, Joe Glazer, and they're all convinced it's original. Groon had actually sold this a long time ago, and it came with some paperwork from him. Hmm. But uh, as far as anybody knows, it's one of a kind, and just really be a beautiful beast, huh? It's an amazing piece. Yeah. A jewel. So. I was talking with George Grun, and he said, well, what are you looking for? And I said, I'd love to find a nice player gold top. And he said, well, I've got just the thing. So I went down there, and he made me a ridiculously great deal on this guitar. It's a 52. Once again, the neck's been broken. Okay. Uh, it originally had the ugly, unwieldy trapeze yes. piece. Someone put on a stop and chopped down an ABR1 bridge so they didn't have to change the neck angle. And I really like the low neck angle. I've never been a P90 guy. I love this guitar. It's my, it's my favorite now. Not to like creamy there. and delicious. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they really did have to chop that down. Yeah, they that's, did. That's, that's right on the right on the body. And, uh, and again, this is before they had the the uh, the little uh, what is it right, the, the token yeah. uh, the chip on there. Yes. And the the guys at Groom were kind enough to refret it and new nut new saddle, so it it plays ridiculously well. Yeah. Plays really nicely in tune. It's one of my more in tune guitars, actually. Yeah. So, what would you tend to use this guitar actually, for? Actually, I've been playing this with the Time Jumpers quite a bit. Really? 
And what do you what do you string this guitar with? They had strung with tens when I got it, and okay. normally I would use elevens on a guitar like this, but the tens really work on it, so I've left them on. Okay, so a regular ten through forty six kind yeah. of set. Yeah. Yeah, a labella set. Yeah, and then on. Some of these other guitars, like well, on uh, the Barney Castle, I've got like a thirteen through fifty-eight or sixty, maybe. And those are flats. Those are flats, and, and and they last forever. Yeah, that's the thing about flat wound strings; they usually sound like crap when you first put them on. Mm -hmm. But on my other Barney Castle, I've got a set that's over twenty years old because they just <laughs> don't go yeah. bad. Yeah, and on the three thirty-five, what gauge string? I've got string? 11s on that. Okay. And again, labellas. Yes. Yeah. And I keep 11s on my uh, tellies and strats. Yeah. I've got a lovely uh, 52 telly and a 59 strat. I'm yeah. a lucky guy. Yeah. You've got some, some very choice pieces. Now, today your amp is a Blackface Pro. Blackface Fender Pro. This is the before the Pro Reverb. This no, is the... it was actually concurrent with the Pro Reverb. Okay. And uh, and it's got the single 15. Yes. Yeah. Fender's bizarre. Uh, yeah. Idea is to have an amp for everybody, which they pretty well did. Yeah. Think about how to, you know how many amps were in their line, how many little increments. Yeah. When you go from it's really hilarious from, yeah. from the champ up to the twin. Yeah. It's a lot of a lot of variations. Yeah. So I I really love old Fender amps, and I have three sixty fours. Actually, I have a reverb, a deluxe reverb. Um, I like the brown ones a lot. I've got a concert yeah. and a bandmaster, and the tweed ones are great too. I've got a couple of those. Yeah. Um, there's also a new manufacturer of amps that I really like called Little Walter. Oh yeah, yeah. And I first got hip to that because he made an amp that I was playing through a '51 Fender Pro, which has the um, octal tubes, eight pin. Right, the octal preamp tubes. tubes right. Yeah. Six CS7s. And he made an amp that was basically that same amp, but modern, uh, really good, high-quality components all the way, hand-wired, point-to-point. And they're really beautiful-sounding amps. Yeah. And I actually did a, uh, oh, I think the second time, Jumper's album. I did half the album with the Pro and half with the Little Walter. And I had to concede that the Little Walter really did sound better than the Pro did. Which hurt my feelings terribly, but, <laughs> but it didn't hurt uh, little Walter's feelings. No, yes. And since then, Phil Phil Bradbury. Phil yeah. Bradbury. And yes. since then, he's actually made the uh, the Andy Reese signature amp. Oh, very nice. Which I think he sold one of, and that was to yes. me. That was to you <laughs> at full bang. <laughs> what is this uh, box that you've got there on top of your amp? I just found this thing. It's by a company called Nocturne. Yes. It's called the El Pescadoro. Okay. And it's a um, combination preamp and reverb unit. And since the Pro doesn't have reverb, it's nice. And it turns out I don't really love spring reverb, so I like this reverb better. Okay. They were designing it to sound like Sun Studios reverb. Yeah. So it's a nice pedal. And I also frequently will use the, uh, the Bonato pedals. Okay. I have two of their units, and I, I really like them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing you're not a heavy effect user. I'm not a heavy effect user. Yeah. So you're, you're going to have maybe some tremolo, delay, you know, maybe a verb or a, yeah. a, a, some type of boost or drive pedal or something. Yeah, that, that's as far as I, I like to go.
Yeah. And, you know, I don't do a lot of mainstream sessions. I'm at a point where people call me to be me. Yeah, and that's a nice which thing. It's a nice place to be. Yeah. Do you use pedals with the time jumpers or, or plug more It depends direct? on the amp I'm using. You know, with a little Walter, I have to use tremolo on a couple of tunes or I want to use tremolo. So yeah. I'll bring like a Strymon Flint or I'll bring the Bonato down. Yeah. Um, this amp has beautiful tremolo, so I just bring the Nocturne Brain for the reverb. Yeah. Well, Andy, I really appreciate you taking the time to come down here to tell us your story, to, to kind of educate us on some Nashville guitar styles. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Zach, the pleasure is all mine. Well, thank you. And guys, thank you for watching, and please be sure and subscribe. Bye-bye. This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.